Our American Stories, and it's time for our weekly first job segment where we hear from famous and ordinary Americans alike about their very first job and what they learned from it and how it helped them to get where they are today. And today's story comes from Joey Cortez, who brings us this story of someone who went through a traumatic experience and how it led to their very first job, which led to so much more. My father went through periods of unemployment, and then at the time that I was 15, he had cardiac arrest. He did survive. He was brought back to life in a very dramatic way, but never was able to work again. That was Carrie Healy, who I interviewed in Wellesley, Massachusetts, a suburb of Boston, But this trying moment in her life happened elsewhere, in her hometown, Daytona Beach, Florida. The next week, uh, I was 15 and I went out and started looking for employment and I I came across it uh, in the the form of Daytona Shell and Curio. It's what we called a a shell shop or a souvenir shop uh, in, in Daytona Beach, so I literally was selling puka shell necklaces and uh, printing t-shirts and sweeping the floors. I think it made me grow up really fast and I've often wondered how I would have turned out if that hadn't happened. There's always a silver lining to difficult situations and one was that his illness made me really focus on how to be supportive of the family and to realize that there wasn't going to be enough money for college unless I worked very hard and made sure that there was. And like many first job stories, Carrie's story isn't only about serious life lessons. Well, I think probably one of the most traumatizing things was I was cleaning out the uh, hermit crab cage at one point and was latched onto by a particularly large hermit crab and ran around the uh, the, the, the store screaming. So, <laughs> as embarrassment goes, that that was that was pretty high. The embarrassment was high, but her wage, not so high. But she didn't complain about it. She did something about it. I also got very motivated after working for. I believe it was maybe 2.25 an hour at that point uh, to try to find a job that wasn't uh, minimum wage uh, very quickly. And so I saved my money from that job and uh, registered in the local community college as soon as I could. So as soon as I turned 16, I registered because that was the youngest you could go. Yeah, community college classes. That's not exactly what's on the mind of your average 16-year-old. We were very fortunate in Daytona at that time because the space program was closing down in 1976 and a lot of the brilliant uh, GE engineers who had been there for the space program were given the opportunity to move back north and go work in Philadelphia or somewhere else and a lot of them decided they really liked living in Daytona Beach. They um, had their kids in schools, they went to the beach, they enjoyed it and there really weren't any jobs for rocket scientists in Daytona Beach. That might be a bit of an understatement. 
so the question became what could they do and a few of them came together and founded the first computer science uh, department at our local community college which was the Daytona Beach Community College and so ironically here in Daytona Beach Community College I had instruction from NASA rocket scientists at 16 who taught what we now call coding. We just called it computer uh, programming. And I trained on a giant room-sized IBM 1130 with card punches. And uh, it, was, uh, it, was a, it was a great learning experience. And it allowed me to get uh, a job that was twice minimum wage at our local newspaper, uh, helping them to computerize their typesetting for the first time. So fortunately, by the time I was 16, I'd already moved out of that uh, having to, to work for minimum wage p position. My first lesson was if you don't like where you are in terms of your earning capacity, you need to get an education to be able to move to the next level. And so that was a huge influence on me when I was thinking, where do I want to go to college? I'd never even seen snow or owned a coat, but I'd heard the word Harvard and I knew that it was the best college in the country, or at least by reputation. And so I went to the public library, I got the address, and I rode away to the admissions office, got the materials, and applied. And a great motivator there was just thinking, well, you know, if I can do this with my education from the Daytona Beach Community College, I should see what other types of education can do for me. Though some of the greatest life lessons Carrie learned didn't come from her community college education, or even from Harvard but rather from her parents. We didn't have a big family, but we did everything together. Uh, we loved each other. I never heard my parents say a cross word to each other in the 55 years they were married. Uh, I never heard my father say anything disrespectful uh, at all to my mother. And so they taught me that marriage can work, that hard work can advance you over the course of your life, and that life isn't going to be easy. They didn't have an easy life, but they always made sure that I didn't feel that I wanted for anything that was necessary, and I am still very inspired by them today. My mom is 90 years old now. Healy was inspired and acted on this inspiration, all the way from a Daytona souvenir shop to becoming the Lieutenant Governor of Massachusetts, and now the President of Babson College, the number one school for entrepreneurship in the country. Here is the Babson community in 2013, after earning this honor for the 20th consecutive year. Reporting for Our American Stories, I'm Joey Cortez. And great job on that, Joey. And for our This Day in History series, we've celebrated the birthday of a Babson graduate, none other than Arthur Blank, the co-founder of the Home Depot, and an entrepreneur even earlier in life while he attended Babson, running a landscaping and laundry business. And in 1998, he established the Arthur M. Blank Center for Entrepreneurship at Babson, their nerve center for entrepreneurial activity. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, First Jobs.
This is Our American Stories, and it's time for our weekly Final Thoughts segment, where we hear final thoughts from people who are dying, and also final thoughts from folks about their loved ones, a eulogy, a written tribute, anything that stirs the soul. And we'd love to hear from you, your Final Thoughts stories. Give us a call at 844-627-8255. Record your story there. Leave us your information, and we can help you record it. Once again, that's 844-627-8255. This week's Final Thoughts feature comes from Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan. Honoring someone you might not expect, someone completely unlike her, at least as it relates to the law, but completely like her in this sense. Well, they're human beings who loved other human beings and being with them, that person she honored is the late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, someone that she hunted with. In fact, he taught her how to hunt. And the occasion of Justice Kagan speaking about Justice Scalia was the dedication of George Mason University's law school in his name. Let's drop in and take a listen. Maureen and the rest of the Scalia family, I'm deeply honored to participate in this dedication of the Antonin Scalia Law School. Although I have to admit, the name strikes me as a little bit formal. I'm wondering if I can substitute the word Dino. It's so fitting It's so right that a fine law school like this one should bear Justice Scalia's name. One reason that's true, the obvious reason, I suppose, has to do with what Justice Scalia accomplished during his time on the bench. He'll go down in history as one of the most important Supreme Court justices ever and also one of the greatest. His articulation of textualist and originalist principles communicated in that distinctive, extraordinary prose, did nothing less than transform our legal culture. It changed the way almost all judges, and so almost all lawyers, think and talk about the law, even if they part ways at one or another point from his interpretive theories. In reading a statute, does anyone now declined to focus first on its text in context? When addressing constitutional meaning, does anyone now ignore the founders' commitments? And in defending an interpretive stance, even if not Justice Scalia's own, does anyone dispute the need to constrain judges from acting on their personal policy preferences? If the answer is no, And the answer is no, or mostly no. (laughs) Justice Scalia deserves much of the credit, and that is a legacy worthy of a law school dedication. But there's another reason George Mason couldn't have selected a better name for its law school, and that's because no one 
was more enthusiastic, more passionate about connecting with law students than Justice Scalia. He visited and revisited law schools across the country to talk about ideas. As the dean said, I once served as dean of the law school he graduated from, so I had the good fortune to host the justice several times. And those days were among the most fun I ever had as dean. Justice Scalia turned it all on, his brilliance, his wit, his good cheer, and his, well, let's say his confidence in the manifest rightness of all his opinions. <laughs> now, here's the way Justice Scalia described what he did on those trips. He said this a few years back. He said, I go to law schools just to make trouble. I give lectures and stir up the students. It takes several weeks for their professors to put them back on track. <laughs> Actually, several weeks were rarely enough. <laughs> Justice Scalia would go from event to event to event, from group to group to group, exciting students, challenging students, provoking students, charming students, and making them think harder than they had ever thought before about how to do law. But really, Justice Scalia didn't need to show up in person to have that effect. He could grab hold of students, shake them, and turn them upside down solely by means of his written opinions. He used to say that when he wrote Law students were one of his target audiences, maybe his principal one. And if my many hours teaching law were in any way typical, he had an almost unerring instinct for what would persuade them, or at least what would force them to question some of their most settled thinking. Justice Scalia's opinions mesmerize law students. Why shouldn't they? Their captivating style, full of wit, dash, and verve. The analytic rigor and precision. The insistence upon logic and discipline in legal reasoning. The ability to convey ideas in the way that will make them most stick with the reader. The very presence of ideas. Deep, thought-provoking understandings of the way law should work. If I heard it once from a student, I heard it a thousand times. Professor Kagan, a student would say, I didn't think I would ever agree with Justice Scalia. <laughs> but he just has to be right about this. And so he was. Not always. <laughs> but often. And so law students in generations to come will tell their professors. And now some of those students will look up and see Justice Scalia's name on their law school's building. What a great, great thing. Congratulations to George Mason University, and congratulations to the Nino Scalia Law School <laughs> for memorializing, for celebrating this most remarkable judge and teacher. And there you have it.
And again, that's Justice Elena Kagan paying respects to Justice Antonin Scalia, Nino. And she's a liberal jurist. He was a conservative jurist. They were both judges serving on the same court. And that collegiality, you can hear it, and it's wonderful. And one can only wish that there was more of that in the country. People just being respectful, enjoying each other's company, disagreeing about some things, agreeing about others, and then going out and hunting together or having a drink together or going to a ball game together. And thank you and kudos to you, Justice Kagan, for that speech, that effort. And, of course, you know that Justice Scalia would have done the same for you. He's that kind of guy. And if you can, pick up the book Scalia Descents, because his descents are just brilliant. And you don't need to be a lawyer to understand them, to follow them, to see the titanic talent, the remarkable writing. He was one of a kind. I'm going to read a couple of quotes from you. He told a young audience at the University of Oxford, Sometimes people come up to me and inquire, Justice Scalia, when did you first become an originalist? As though it's some weird affliction. You know, when did you start eating human flesh? And you could hear the Oxford Commons just start laughing. He told another audience of students, You think there ought to be a right to abortion? No problem. The Constitution says nothing about it. Create it the way most rights are created in a democratic society. Pass a law. And that law, unlike a constitutional right to abortion created by a court, can compromise. What Scalia really believed is in the people's power to create and make their own laws and govern themselves. And this always shocked folks when they met him. This is Our American Stories. Final thoughts, Justice Kagan paying tribute to Justice Scalia. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We're back with one of our favorite topics, random acts of kindness. You can find all sorts of these uplifting stories at randomactsofkindness.org. It's an inspiring resource and a great one to share with your kids. Also, make sure to leave your story there, and hopefully it can make its way onto Our American Stories right here. And here we begin with a story we found from Denver, Colorado, featuring a very sick little girl who had more important things to do than feel sorry for herself. It is my absolute pleasure to introduce to you, Marley! She's quite the star and the driving force behind this school fundraiser. In one week, Mount Vista raised $92,700. 
can see why a school would want to rally behind Marley, a nine-year-old with an infectious smile. She was once the fastest soccer player on her team. But last year, she was diagnosed with a rare cancer called rhabdomyosarcoma, a malignant soft tissue cancer. She went through 40 weeks of chemo, and her kicking foot had to be amputated. It was a tough conversation, and so I told her, and she, I thought she understood it. And then two days later, she asked me, so when will it grow back? Once Marley wrapped her mind around it, she also made up her mind. It wasn't going to stop her. In less than a week, she was doing cartwheels on it, literally doing cartwheels which scared us, but we don't want to tell her she can't do anything. When it came time for Marley to make a wish. Because we had talked about it for a long time. What do you want to do with your wish? So one day she said, you know, if I've got to think about it this hard, I just don't think I need a wish. Instead, Marley decided to give, give hope and comfort to other kids. She decided Build-A-Bear is where her wish would start. Making bears with love. To give to kids That's good. who are where she's been. Here we go. In the pediatric oncology center at Children's Hospital. I did that wish because I knew how it felt to be um, to feel sick at the hospital. So um, it would make me feel better if I had a build a bear. Sixty bears in Marley's wagon. Donor bears all done. And every single one slated for a patient, a child who desperately needs a smile. Yours is adorable. I hope that they like it and that they feel better when they get it. Today, the Oncology Center takes on a new life, one that, as you can imagine, doesn't normally exist. Kids still have bald heads and machines in tow, but today, they will smile. You want this one? Yeah. <laughs> one by one, bears come off the shelf. Do you want to give her an abrazo and say thank you? Yeah. <laughs> They're given a new name. A white one? All right. He's going to get dirty. Thank right. you so much, sweetheart. And told about the heart Marley placed in all of them. Wait, you had cancer too? Is it all gone? Yeah. Is gonna be. Each one with a wish. It feels good because they would come in before not looking really good, but then they would come, they would finish their bear and then smile. A wish of healing, comfort, and more smiles today than yesterday. Every kid that I saw left here, they were all smiling and hugging their bears. And that's why this isn't where Marley's wish ends. With every bear hug, her wish continues to live on. Amazing story, and I almost want to get Marley on this show. And I think we all got something to learn from someone like this. And this is why when you start to feel like you're a victim, you want to haul out Marley, always. You just want to haul her out. And here, a story from Kenner, Louisiana. And again, this is from randomactsofkindness.org. And this is our Random Act of Kindness segment that we try to do every Friday at this time. Because, well, you've had enough of bad news all week long. And it's time to hear something positive. Uh, This one's a simple story of kindness, reminding us that even when the national conversation is polarized, we can take care of each other. The viral image that has everyone talking, just one man and one woman walking in the rain. When I saw this, I thought people need to see that. There are people that are kind on both sides of the color line, and we need to focus more on how we can help each other and how we can be there for each other rather than what sets us apart. I got three of you, and the last one was the best one. Deepak Sani snapped the shot, sharing the sweet moment on Facebook. 
in the middle of a downpour. The man opens his umbrella and his heart, walking shopper after shopper through a rain-soaked Target parking lot. There was no rhyme or reason to doing it. It was just, hey, people need help. James Varnado is the good Samaritan in shining armor who didn't even realize he was caught on camera. I didn't expect somebody to show it, give any kind of recognition or anything like that. I just did what I always do. It was really interesting because people were just really touched. They were taken aback. I mean, no one really wants to get wet, but this guy didn't also have to take it upon himself to help people. And in this time of tension with shootings, violence, and protests capturing headlines, his act of kindness captured hearts. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what you do, doesn't matter if you're the richest person in the world or the poorest person in the world. Somebody needs help, help them. If someone needs help, help them. And they're right. I mean, if it bleeds, it leads. So the media is just going to always pounce on what separates us and what angers people. And, you know, if you're watching the news every day, you'd think these are the most violent times in our city's history. And by the way, these are the least violent times in our city's history. Cops have done an amazing job in our big cities of lowering crime rates. And civilians have been committing less crimes. And so none of these things are being heralded. It's always the outlier. It's the bad cop, boom, on television. It's the it's a couple of crazy kids doing some stupid stuff in a gang. It's on it's on television. And the average person trying to get ahead and do the right thing, that's just not an interesting story to the media. And that's the ultimate bias of the media. And that is to sensationalism, ultimately. And finally, here's a story involving some inmates breaking out of a holding area to get to their jailer in Parker County, Texas. And just when we think we know how a story will go, there's always room for kindness and pleasant surprise. At least eight prisoners behind a locked door, one armed guard across the room. Watch the lower part of the screen as the guard suddenly slumps unconscious. He just, you know, fell over, and I thought it looked like an act or something. I mean, you know, he died right there, man. Nick Kelton and other inmates shouted for help, then managed to bust out of their holding room even though they knew that was dangerous. I was a little worried because when they, they're going to come with their guns drawn on us. The guard had no pulse. Inmates screamed and banged on doors, so loud that deputies upstairs in court came running. They thought it was a big old fight going on down there. They thought we was taking over. He had keys and he had a gun. Yeah, it could have been extremely bad situation. Sergeant Ryan Spiegel rushed in first, corralled the inmates, still not completely understanding what was happening. Deputies started CPR. Paramedics arrived, shocked the guard, regained a pulse. Inmates watched life returning. Why did you do that? That's a good man. Saved life. Uh, Nick Kelton says he's a meth addict facing his fourth trip to prison. Parker County Sheriff's Captain Mark Garnett believes prisoners certainly helped the guard and likely saved him. He could have been there 10, 15 minutes. And before anybody, you know, any other staff, any other sheriff's officer, county personnel had walked in there and found him. To show one's true stripes is to reveal character. Nick Kelton and the others went to court expecting to do time, not to give it. I mean, it never crossed my mind not to, whether he's got a gun or a badge, if he falls down, I'm gonna help him. It seems natural to me. Yeah. The jailer doesn't want to be identified. He is expected to return to work next week. Ironically, that little holding pen that the inmates broke out of to raise the alarm, that's been reinforced so that that can't happen again. <laughs> Irony. Yeah, there it is. That's the word. 
And by the way, here on Our American Stories, we talk to guys in prison because they're human beings there. And many of them can be redeemed. Many of them have been there because of bad choices, circumstance. But we talk to them. And look what they did here. Great stories. Go to randomactsofkindness.org. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now and then, we love to throw to Jesse's favorite segment, and he brings us, well, he brings this to us when he feels like it. Let's take a listen. (laughs) Shower thoughts. People shouldn't be allowed to use the bathroom on an airplane for flights lasting under two hours. If you can't hold it for that long, too bad. I'm sorry your mommy didn't teach you any self-control. I'd like to think that money wouldn't change who I am, but when I'm winning Monopoly, I become a terrible person. If organized crime started printing high-quality counterfeit college textbooks and then sold them at cut-rate prices, it'd be a really good public relations move. If pigs could fly, I bet their wings would taste delicious. When boarding an airplane, first-class passengers are forced to sit at eye level with the coach passengers' crotches as they board. Airlines could solve this problem by letting first-class board last. Sometimes pets are better than children. They eat less, they don't ask for money, and if they get pregnant, you can just sell their babies. Dog food could say it's any flavor it wants to. You're not going to test it. When I was a small kid, my grandma used to show me love by playing along with my make-believe games. Now that she's older and has dementia, it's my turn to show love by playing along with hers. If you accuse someone of being argumentative, they can't disagree with you without proving your point. Why would anybody buy a bookmark for a dollar when they could use a dollar for a bookmark? According to most ghost photos, our clothes must have a soul too, otherwise all ghosts would be photographed naked. The kind of people who close the shade on an airplane window should be placed on the terrorist watch list and not be allowed to fly. These people are the last kind of soul-sucking vampires I would want to die with if, God forbid, the plane went down in flames over the sun-scorched desert. Shouldn't billboards be illegal since they distract you from the road? If you wash the dirt from a fallen ice cube, you're washing your water with water and hope that there's only water on the water that you will add to your water. Shower thoughts. (laughs) Well, thanks for that, Jesse, as always. And next, we're bringing you Melissa Fenton, who runs the website www.fourboysmother.com. As you might guess, Melissa is a wife and a mother of four boys and writes humorous and heartfelt essays about modern parenting and nostalgia. We've all heard about that tragic accident at Disney World 
where two parents enjoying a vacation with their kids suddenly and violently had their world torn upside down when an alligator took their two-year-old boy in front of their very eyes. The father suffered numerous wounds as he fought a losing battle for his young, helpless son in the alligator's clutches. The mother even ran to help and also suffered wounds. Tragically, in the end, the young boy was not saved. And the day after the accident, Melissa Fenton penned a fantastic essay, Open Letter to Perfect Parents, Put Down Your Pitchforks, that went absolutely viral. And, well, she recorded it for us. Let's take a listen to Melissa's poignant rant that rivals some of Hengler's very best rants. Parents, I beg of you, stop blaming and shaming other parents. 35 years ago, a mom shopping in a Sears department store went to go look at lamps and left her six-year-old with another group of boys who were all trying out the new Atari game at a kiosk. That boy's name was Adam Walsh. 30 years ago, an 18-month-old toddler playing in her aunt's backyard fell into a well. Rescuers worked nonstop for 58 hours, finally freeing baby Jessica from the well. In both cases, a tragedy happened. An unforeseen tragic accident took place which left Adam dead and a toddler fighting for her life deep underground. But they also had something else in common. They had an entire country of moms and dads supporting the grieving parents. Let me repeat that. Everyone supported the rescue efforts without blame. No blame. None. Zero. No questions asked. Not one single, where were their parents, comment. Just a country of other moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, watching in horror as a set of parents, one of their own, went through the unthinkable. Adam was everybody's son, and Jessica was everybody's daughter. Those parents were us. Flash forward to 2016, the year of the perfect parent. Yesterday, a two-year-old boy splashing in the magical lakefront waters of a Disney resort succumbed to the wilds of Mother Nature. An aggressive alligator scooped him out of the water right under the watch of his father, who attempted to fight with the alligator to free his baby son. Pure horror. Sheer terror. Parents who actually had to watch their baby be taken from them as if they were in some African nature documentary. A tragic and unforeseeable accident. An accident. I weep for this mother and father. I am sick with anguish for the pain, agony, misery, and regret, regret pulsing through their veins this very second. And I bet you are too. But not everyone is. You see, we now live in a time where accidents are not allowed to happen. You heard me. Accidents, of any form, in any way, and at any time, well, they just don't happen anymore. Why? Because blame and shame. Because we have become a nation of blamers and shamers. And how are accidents allowed to happen if we can't blame someone? Surely they can't, right? I mean, random acts of nature, unpreventable tragedies, and fateful life-changing events that take place in a matter of nanoseconds cannot possibly take place if everyone is being a responsible parent, right? Nope. They can't, because this country and its population of perfect pitchfork-carrying mothers and fathers sitting behind keyboards needs to accuse. They need to blame. 
to disparage, to criticize in every damn way and at every damn corner the parenting of another. And when do they really get to lick their blaming chops? When a tragic accident happens. That's when the pouncing is at its freshest. When raw emotion and ignorance collide and they dig their word claws in and take hold of whatever grace these grieving mothers and fathers have left in their souls. And they tear it out. Listen to me very carefully, perfect parents. Very carefully. I've had enough. I've had enough of scrolling through comment threads and seeing over and over again questions like, Where were the parents? And thoughts like, this is what happens when you don't watch your kids. I've simply had enough. I have one question for the blaming and shaming moms and dads. You know the ones who immediately blame the parents. The ones who go on the internet and type comments like, this is nothing but neglect by the parents. And they should have known better. Who was watching that little boy? And my personal favorite, I would never let that happen to my kid. Here's my question. Have you ever been to a child's funeral before? Because I have. The funeral of a child is an event in life that you never, ever want to experience. Now let me ask you another question. In the coming week, these parents will fly back to their home in Nebraska without one of their children. They will leave a vacation resort, packing up his Buzz Lightyear pajamas and his favorite blanket, and they will make an excruciatingly difficult journey home. A journey that they never in a million years thought they would be making. They will meet with a funeral director, pick out a tiny casket, a tiny burial suit, and surrounded by family, they will bury their baby boy, and they will suffer every single day for the rest of their life. At the funeral for this two-year-old boy who died in front of his parents, can you do me a favor? Can you walk up to that mother and say the words that you just typed out last week? Can you? Can you greet her, hug her, shake the father's hand, and then say, Who was watching that little boy? You should have known better. I would never let that happen to my child. Can you do that for me? I mean, you felt those words so deeply in your heart and soul that you typed them for a million people to read. Certainly, you can say it straight to the faces of the people you meant it for, right? Here, let me help you. Put away your pitchfork for a moment and try this. To the mother and father who went for a walk and vacation for the last time with their little boy yesterday, I am deeply sorry that you had to experience the worst kind of tragedy possible, an accident. I grieve with you. Your baby was my baby. Your son was my son. I have nothing but love for you, love to help you get through the pain yesterday, today, and for what is going to seem like a thousand tomorrows. I wrap my thoughts and prayers around your aching heart and soul. May the God of this universe, in some miraculous way, bring peace to you and your family. That is what you say. That. And just that. Stop blaming. Stop shaming. In their darkest hours, can we please just love other parents? Please? And that was Melissa Fenton, author of An Open Letter to Perfect Parents. Put down your pitchforks. Couldn't agree more. That's why we ran it. This is Lee Habib. 
This is Our American Stories. And if you want to hear more of our content, more of our storytelling, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to talk about music. We love to talk about race and class, but in a way you've never heard anywhere else. And we love to talk about this a unique experience and this unique thing we call music. Music touches us in ways we don't know, and I wanted to tell the story today about Robert Plant, the lead singer of Led Zeppelin. We had told it before, and we want to tell it again, and... Robert Plant, of course, was the lead singer for Led Zeppelin. He fell in love with music because, well, he fell in love with the black experience. And the black experience manifested itself through and in music in this great country. And it went all across the way to the pond, and that is the Atlantic Ocean. And Robert Plant fell in love with music first and first only with the blues music of the Delta. And so we bring you this story about Robert Plant and his connection to America's story. The band, Led Zeppelin, the voice, Robert Plant's. I can't quit you, babe. So I'm going to put you down for a while. Though British, Led Zeppelin's music was rooted in the American South, and blues specifically. That's Robert Plant, Jimmy Page, John Paul Jones, and John Bonham's take on the great Willie Dixon classic, and it appeared on their very first record. The band formed in 1968, made only nine studio recordings, all of which made it to the top ten on the Billboard charts, and they sold, get this, 110 million records. The band suffered a huge setback, though, when their drummer, John Bonham, died. And it wasn't long before the band died. They called it quits in 1980. 
Robert Plant soon found himself out of a job as the lead singer of the world's biggest band. And my goodness, he had no idea what to do next. He talked about the next steps in his journey as an artist. I knew when I was 32 and Led Zeppelin finished, and I was just standing there going, wow, I suppose that's a lot then, you know. Um, I'll perhaps I better do a bit of dry stone walling or something like that, you know. Uh, how about being a steeplejack, you know, or if I like the heights. So I was always sort of wobbling around. Like a lot of artists, wobbling around. Plant spoke about the music that inspired him, the music that drove Zeppelin and also the Rolling Stones, their compatriots, and so many other, well, British boys. When I was a kid, I was... a like so many people of my generation, we were really moved by the the deep soul of black American music from Mississippi, from uh, moving, you know, with development and industry up into Chicago and Detroit, uh, down to New Orleans where nothing really, it was another world, it wasn't even America. But British kids of my age really was so transfixed by the change and by the dynamic of a black culture mm. that we really, really w were... Um, these guys became instant heroes. They may have been unsavory, they may have been unlucky, they may have been hellhounds, they could have been anything, but basically they were... They were there was a allure to the music of the black American which kept us going, the Yardbirds, you know, the Stones, etc. <laughs> As time passed and Plant continued to explore different musical styles, he returned again to the American South. This is about the year 2000. But instead of blues music being the inspiration, he rediscovered the roots music he grew up with in England, the songs and music that also inspired country and folk music here. It's known as Americana. Here is Plant talking about that music. Happened to me later was I found that there was more stuff underneath the covers mm. going on. And it was still coming from Ireland and, pla and places in Tennessee and in the mountains where people just hadn't moved on. Families lived there for five generations without shifting from one township. So the music followed down through the families. And we got really old songs there. Well, after multiple Grammys with Alison Krauss, Plant described the band he formed in 2010 a band with Buddy Miller, Daryl Scott, Patty Griffin, among others. He'd traveled a long way, Plant, a long way from those electrified sounds of Led Zeppelin and one singer leading a band. There's loads of ways of skinning a cat, really, and um, I just think that the people... I mean, this band of joy here is... There are six voices on this. So sometimes when we hit something like Gallows Pole, uh, it is... Virtually entirely, apart from a banjo intro, it's a cappella, and it kicks like you can believe. Silver, you get a little gold 
This is Lee Habib. You're listening to Our American Stories. When we come back, we will continue with this remarkable story about a man, a British man, who comes to America to discover his own roots, not once, but twice. We'll be back in just a few. Couldn't get no gold. You know that we're too dead home. Keep you from the gallows pole. There's loads of ways of skinning a cat, really, and um, I just think that the people... I mean, the band of joy here is... There are six voices on this. So sometimes when we hit something like Gallows Pole, uh, it is virtually entirely, apart from a banjo intro, it's a cappella, and it kicks like you wouldn't believe. And boy, does it kick. Plant went on to discuss his life as an artist. And by the way, artist's life are not always easy. Great success followed by barren periods. And my goodness, the 80s and 90s were barren periods for Robert Plant. Don't go back and listen to that discography. It's, it's not pretty. But he was experimenting, and he wanted to go anew. In fact, at one point during this interview, he said, what I did not want to do again was become a Robert Plant cover band. There were too many better ones than me. So struggling for the new identity that matched where he was in his life is always the artist's struggle, not to do the same thing again over and over. So Plant discussed his life as an artist and the detours, contours, that made and still make his life as an artist so compelling. It's been a very strange navigational game, this which I've enjoyed. I mean, sometimes the shadows that come behind me are a little bit bigger than I need them to be, but it's been great fun. So I've rejected it. I've turned my back on it and I can't be any of the guys I ever was before. You know, I mean, you've got to evolve is the only way to get through. So, you know, just give me bigger maps. Just give me bigger maps. And again, the map became the United States, Appalachian music, the hill country music of North Carolina, Virginia, straight down to the roots music of some of his early idols, but in particular Nashville, which is where he ended up living for a while. Plant never saw himself, we learn in this particular interview, as a great singer. By the way, we'll learn as we profile Billie Holiday in a couple of months that she never saw herself as a great singer. She had wished she had the chops of a Sarah Vaughan. But as Plant points out here, it's precisely because he didn't have those chops that perhaps he brought something else to the table. His real talent? Having the ability to get under the skin of a song and, well, bring it to life. I just, I just get into songs and live them out. 
which is a different thing, you know. Uh, and I think that's true. If everything else I said wasn't true, that's really true. That's really true. You know, Jesse, is there a, is there a, a Zeppelin song that's that's yours? Is there a is there one that? Oh, it's a bit you? on the nose, but "Stairway to Heaven's always been a killer. Yep, it's been, I think, a killer for everybody. I think in every single rock and roll countdown around the country, it's always the number one song. Definitely. And it's what? How many years later? 1977, 76? Before my time. Yeah, and I've noticed also, Jesse, that you go around and you, you see, and I live in a great college town. We're in Oxford, Mississippi. And you talk to young people, and Kanye West, Stairway to Heaven, right next to each other on an iPod. Oh. And that's something that's really remarkable about how people are transmitting and gathering their music. It's not categories anymore back when, like when we were kids. Well, here is Plant in a concert performed in 2010 for the BBC. It was with his band of joy. He tells a story here about the song he ended this great concert with. A concert, by the way, you can watch by simply Googling the words Band of Joy and BBC. It's an hour-long, precious, precious piece of music. Put it on a big screen TV, invite some friends. Well, it's like you're going to a great new concert you never saw before. And by the way, we love doing that here on Our American Stories. Because when you bump into something new that was old, it's new to you. And we're not going to do the news here every night because most of what's in the news is, well, nonsense. It's not anything that anyone cares about. Folks just have to fill up the news. And I think if you look carefully at CNN's ratings and Fox's, they don't hold a candle to anything that's on mainstream television or radio. So here's that song that we were talking about. And it's a beautiful example of Plant, quote, living out a song along with some other extraordinary singers. Now, you know, I finally got my way after uh, so many thousands of years of saying, why don't you finish the show with a song that says everything? And uh, I tried to sell the idea to a few people down the line, but we've got it now, so... Lay down, my dear sister, won't you lay and take your rest? Won't you lay your head upon my Savior's breast? But I love you, but Jesus loves you the best. And I bid you good night, good night, good night. Oh, I bid you good night. Good night, good morning. One of these mornings, bright and early and fine. Good night, good night. Not a cricket, not a soul to slow me down. Good night, good night. Oh, I'll be walking in the valley of the shadow of death. Good night, good night. Good night. He's running a step for comfort me. For the art that a wonderful poet Good night, good night You know the building of the lake at 
water to flow in my good night, good night. Tell them B for the peace that the ending of the word, good night, good night. You know they ate all the children when they wouldn't be good, good night, good night. And I remember quite well, I remember quite well. Singing the song he'd wanted to sing all his life on the stage, never having felt comfortable in his own skin, and having a bunch of bandmates who thought it utterly ridiculous to sing a song so beautiful. And have you ever heard something so beautiful from Robert Plant? Sometimes you need to be in your 60s to figure out who you are. I bid you good night. Well, we looked it up. We tried to find the writer. There isn't one. Like so many great old gospel songs, it's just a traditional ballad. He had heard it in the hills of Scotland, and how many young people had heard it in the hills of Appalachia? No difference. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the life of Robert Plant, his art, his music, and so utterly connected to the American story here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib. We'll be right back.
is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History segment, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. A great place to study all the things that matter in life. Government, art, history, and of course, philosophy. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will get to you. Go to hillsdale.edu and catch their great online courses. The Constitution 101 is about as good as it gets. I went to a great American law school and learned more in that class than I did in three years at the University of Virginia about my own country's founding documents. And then there's a course on C.S. Lewis. And it doesn't get better, folks. It does not get better. And that's about 10 hours. So if you don't think there's any material for you to sit around a computer with and watch with your kids, think again. Uh, That's hillsdale.edu. And I know that the folks at Hillsdale care a lot about sports because they care a lot about character development. And the classical education wasn't just about shaping the mind, but the body. And that's why we love to talk about sports, not because we're sports crazed, but because the important sports plays in the development of the American character. We learned that when Teddy Roosevelt was talking about football and what he thought football meant and how it shaped men and men's lives. And so we're digging into the life today of Sandy Koufax. And on this day in history, in 1966, a baseball legend a player who seemed on the top of the world, decided to retire. We're talking, of course, about Sandy Koufax. And by the way, we should do a whole hour on retirements in sports and the arts because so many people just don't do this right. Michael Jordan stayed in it too long. Willie May stayed in it too long. You know who got it right? Johnny Carson got it right. He retired, he went away. Seinfeld got it right, and Sandy Koufax got it right. He was born in Brooklyn in 1935. And young Sandy never got to know his biological father, but had an extremely strong relationship with his stepfather, Irving Koufax. Taking after his very shy mother, young Sandy was usually very reserved, but he let loose when playing almost any sport. Sandy never intended to become a baseball player, much less a professional, and let alone a Hall of Famer. Here he is with some of his early teammates, coaches, and biographers, describing how he stumbled into this sport. I wound up in baseball almost by accident. Uh, there was a man by the name of Milton Barry who had a sandlot team in Brooklyn, and I guess during infield he decided I should pitch. My father said, he's going to be a pitcher, I'm going to make him a pitcher. So we have to get him to play with us on our sandlot team. Despite his obvious pitching talent, Koufax gained local fame as a 6-2 forward at Lafayette High School. Ranking second in his division of the public school league in scoring, he earned a college basketball scholarship. For some reason, he fell in love with the idea of Cincinnati University, and just by the accident that the freshman basketball coach was also the varsity baseball coach. I first met Sandy Koufax at the University of Cincinnati. Talking to him, he told me after seeing his play in Madison Square Garden, that was a school that he wanted to attend and play some basketball. And really only went out for the baseball team because he heard that the team was going to be going to New Orleans. I'd never been to New Orleans, so I decided I'd probably be a pretty good baseball player, maybe. He said, hey, coach, I'm a pitcher. And he said, coach, that's sure, yeah. Uh, and he said, no, no, I, I pitch in the sandlot. Uh, You know, I was pretty good. I said, kid, the season's over with, I'll take a look at you. And I did take a look at him. And what I saw was unbelievable. And you know, what's interesting here is, I mean, imagine what we just heard. Sandy Koufax gets into baseball for one reason. He wants to go to New Orleans. 
And I don't, I don't recall the name of the Medal of Honor winner, but David Leonard was interviewing and saying, say, how did you get into the Army? And he said, well, I was working at Subway at night, and I heard about a free T-shirt if I went to sign up for the Army. I had no intention of signing up. I just love the idea of a free T-shirt. And this led to that. He said, I like the pitch. I went back home. I joined the Army. And, of course, Medal of Honor winner. So sometimes the most remarkable things that happen in people's life stories, they aren't exactly planned. Let's go back to the story, though. Koufax had blazing speed as a pitcher, but very little control. Seeing potential in the southpaw, the Brooklyn Dodgers signed the young pitcher, but didn't give him much to do or much opportunity to learn. Here's Sandy with a reporter, and then the legendary Duke Snyder, a Dodger teammate, remembering Sandy's very rough start. My first two years, I just sat in the big leagues and really did very little except watch. And all of a sudden, you realize, you know, you're not trained for your job, and it took a while. I had not pitched. I'd pitched four or five Sandlot games and four games in college. That's it. My first recollection of Sandy Koufax is in Vero Beach, his first spring, and it was like 10 o'clock in the morning, and Sandy's first pitch went sailing over the backstop, landed on the roof of the press room, clunk, and it woke up a 65-year-old sports writer who was in there taking a morning nap. <laughs> when he first came up, he couldn't throw a baseball inside the batting cage. Now, that's pretty wild. That is pretty wild. Seeing how poorly Sandy was doing, he began to lose motivation as the Dodgers moved from Brooklyn to L.A. Here's Sandy Koufax, Dodgers general manager, Buzzy Buvesi, some sports writers, and Dodger catcher Norm Sherry, Remembering that fork in the road, and by the way, we've all been there in that fork in the road, and this is Sandy Koufax's. It was frustrating. In fact, uh, I asked out at one time, you know, I had an argument with Buzzy in the Coliseum. When we moved to Los Angeles, I said, you know, I want to get out of here. He came to me in the tunnel of the Coliseum and said that he was retiring, he was going home. And I said, well, when are you leaving? He said, tomorrow. I said, we'll be in my office tomorrow morning. I'll have the ticket for you. Duvesi told me that in the back of his own mind, he was thinking, I'm throwing down the gauntlet to Koufax. It, you know, it's up to him now to pick it up. Later, he came to me and he said, uh, I've got to go back to spring training next year and give it a real shot, real shot. And if I still feel the same way, I'm going to quit. He gets to spring training in 61. And he's scheduled to pitch in a split squad game against the Twins in Orlando. First pitch, I think I called for a curveball, and it was a ball. And I called for a changeup, it was a ball. And, and then I called for a fastball, and it was a ball. And we had the bases loaded. Now he had thorny strikes. And I said, Sandy, what you really need to do now is take something off the ball. I said, lay it in there and let them hit the ball, and we'd get some outs. I went back behind the plate, and uh, he just wound up and just said, here, hit the ball. Well, nobody hit the ball. He struck out the side. And uh, it worked out. You know, I pitched the eight innings. I pitched a no-hitter for the eight innings. And I think it was the, the start of my attitude changing. Well, Norm Sherry taught him to relax his grip a little bit, relax his body, and he got complete control of his body to where he was a fantastic pitcher. Best I've seen. And by the way, we learned about that relaxation from Al Pacino. I remember in our hour we did on him, he talked about how he would repeat the fervent prayer of Michelangelo's when he was painting the Sistine Chapel, and that was, Lord, free me from myself so I can serve you. And that was the way that Al Pacino would relax. And in the end, that's what Sandy Koufax needed to do. He had all this talent, but he just couldn't relax on the mound. So now he's able to control his raw power. Sandy Koufax then hits his stride. 
Let's listen again to sports writers and Sandy's fellow players, many of them Hall of Famers themselves and players with 20-plus seasons under their belts. And the awe is still evident. I don't think anybody's ever had six years like Sandy Koufax had from 1961 to 1966. He won three Cy Young Awards when there was only one Cy Young Award given for both leagues. Pitchers sort of have the unofficial triple crown of wins, strikeouts, and earned run average. Now, Colfax won that triple crown three times in a four-year period. Sandy reading signs into his windup, 2-2 two, two pitch. Fastball got him swinging. Catching him was like, well, we're going to kick somebody's ass tonight. His mechanics were so pure, he looked like he wasn't even throwing hard. He was like throwing 98 miles an hour, you know. Sandy's hands, if you look at it, could almost go right around the equator of a baseball and touch. At the very end of Koufax's delivery, his left shoulder would rock back. It was like the recoil of a rifle. He threw so hard that the muscles were adjusting and pushing his shoulder back. And I've never seen that in any other pitcher. He was snake-like. He was elegant and powerful. It was just awesome to see the twist in that arm, the tremendous power. Every ounce of strength that he had went into that pitch. Koufax came straight over the top, which gave his ball extra spin and rotation, and would give it that little flare at the end where the ball would rise six to eight inches as it uh, crossed home plate. This is Our American Stories on this day in history. In 1966, Sandy Koufax, the legend, at the top of his game, retired. American stories and on this day in history in 1966 a baseball legend a player who seemed on the top of the world decided to retire we're talking of course about Sandy Koufax and by the way during the break we had Hengler just going crazy about how his dad tried to teach him the almost ballet-like beauty of Sandy Koufax's delivery and the raw power that came out of that beautiful delivery sort of like watching Tiger when his stroke was at its best It was a beautiful thing to see, but don't get confused. That beauty uh, unleashed raw power, and it just intimidated anyone who competed against Tiger. And the same with Koufax. When he was on that mound, the the batters were afraid of him. They were afraid of him, and he did not smile a lot, and neither did Tiger. He wanted to kill these people. He was very competitive. And so let's pick up where we left off. Hall of Famer and two-time National League home run leader Willie Stargell. He remembers playing against Koufax. I just called Koufax a comfortable old for four. <laughs> Somebody asked me one time, what was it like hitting off of Koufax? I said, you ever drink coffee with a fork? <laughs> you ever drink coffee with a fork? <laughs> and this is one of the great hitters of all time, and he said, I just called it a comfortable O for four. Wow. Wow. And by the way, imagine having that in your mind going up to the plate. What an advantage for a pitcher. To have the batter know he's not going to hit you. It's wonderful. Hall of Famer and four-time National League home run leader Willie Mays felt almost as helpless against Sandy Koufax. I couldn't hit him. Sandy would strike me out two or three times a game, and I knew every pitch he was going to throw, fastball, breaking ball, or whatever. I knew it. And actually, he let you look at it, and you still couldn't hit it. 
Oh, and you, look again, Willie Mays. Uh, this is the Barry Bonds of his day, uh, hands down. He could do everything, and again, the resignation and almost the humor. But many remember Koufax for more than his maddening skills. They remember him for his character. Here's Newsday sports columnist Stan Isaacs and Jewish leaders on the time Sandy Koufax made history by not pitching. Some historian wrote a book. The name of the book was The Hundred Most Influential Jews of All Time. And it had Einstein at the top and Jesus Christ and Moses. And there was one athlete, only one athlete on the list. And the athlete was Sandy Koufax. Nothing contributed more to Koufax's place in social history than his following the footsteps of Hank Greenberg, who in 1934 chose not to play on Yom Kippur. The difference was that Koufax elected not to start game one of the 1965 World Series. The Day of Atonement is the most sacred day of the Jewish year. It's a 24-hour fast from sunset to sunset. And the Jew stays in the temple the entire day. He wanted baseball to respect uh, a a Jewish holiday as much as baseball uh, would respect Christian holidays. He believed in what he was doing. A lot of people say, I believe in this, but when it comes to paying the price, we'll not pay the price. To celebrate his own Judaism. Here I am, a proud Jew who's not even going to play a baseball game because of a Jewish holiday. Wow, the Jews were applauding in the streets. I was still in high school in 65. Jewish kid from New York. I mean, we didn't have many Jewish sports idols. (laughs) And here was Sandy making the statement. I'm thinking, how cool is this? There was no hard decision for me. It was just a uh, thing of respect. I wasn't trying to make a statement, uh, and I had no idea that it would impact that many people. And that's what it was all about for Koufax. No grand gestures. He just wanted baseball to respect his religion. And even if some were upset by Koufax's decision to not pitch Game 1 of the 1965 World Series, even more were inspired by his actions throughout that series. Here's Bob Costas. Every single Jewish kid I grew up with in New York revered Sandy Koufax and thought that it was something very important, very significant, that he didn't pitch on a high holiday. But then that he came back on two days rest eventually to pitch game seven. Uh, There wasn't a Jewish kid that I knew who didn't get a lift out of what that represented. It's hard to describe just how dominant Koufax was. After seeing Koufax's performance in Game 1 of the 1963 World Series against the Yankees, Yogi Berra said of the Southpaw, quote, I can see how he won 25 games. What I don't understand is how he lost five. On September 9, 1965, Koufax pitched a perfect game, not allowing a single opposing player to reach first base. He was the first left-hander since 1880 and the sixth pitcher of the modern era to do so. So imagine the shock when in 1966, Sandy Koufax called some reporters together and said this. I don't have much to say. I just have one short statement, and I'll try and answer any questions that anybody has. Uh, a few minutes ago, I sent a letter to Buzzy asking him to put me on the voluntary retirement list. And not a big deal, not a farewell tour. 
By the way, that's why so many people love what Timmy Duncan recently did at the San Antonio Spurs. He just said, I'm done. Goodbye. And that was it. Championships, championships, but it wasn't about him and Koufax class from beginning to end. So Sandy Koufax announces his retirement. It's headline news across the country. He wasn't just an L.A. or Brooklyn hero. He had fans all over the country. Here's Marvin Miller, former head of Major League Baseball Players Association, some teammates, and yes, some sports writers, explaining why Sandy had to stop playing. I went into the clubhouse and Koufax was sitting with his left arm in a tub of ice water. I never saw an arm swollen that badly. He saw the alarm on my face. He said, don't worry. It always does this. Try <laughs> pitch, you know. That's the first time I ever heard of being ice being a miracle drug. Not only did he play in pain, but he, he rested in pain. There were times when Sandy couldn't comb his hair. There were times he had to shave his face with his right hand rather than his left hand because his left elbow hurt him so much. He couldn't, couldn't raise his hand to his face. It got to the point where he said, I'm not going to be a cripple the rest of my life. And uh, he just gave it up. This was a guy who threw every pitch as hard as he could. Every pitch was a fastball or a sharp breaking curveball. He wound up really giving his arm for the Dodgers. The extent of the pain that he took uh, and endured was just incredible. Um, you had the ice, you had the heat treatments. Um, he was taking these orange pills, anti-inflammatory pills that made him sick to his stomach. I never missed a start. You know, and started a lot of games with two days rest and you know, couldn't believe it. But the medical staff, the trainers, the doctor, they got me through it. You can't imagine that today, two days rest. And these guys would pitch complete games. you got to remember that, too, and that doesn't happen anymore. Here are some sports writers reflecting on the historic nature of Koufax's retirement and what it reveals about him as a man. No one else in baseball history has ever won 20 games in his last season and then retired. Koufax won 27. No one in the century retired after striking out 200 batters in his last season. Koufax retired after striking out 317. When he quit, his record was still sensational his last season, but the pain was equally sensational. I was getting uh, his cortisone shots with uh, pretty good regularity, and I just feel like I, I don't want to take a chance on completely disabling myself. It insulted him to think that pitch playing baseball was going to leave him with a hand or arm that couldn't do the things that normal people could do. That's the thought of somebody who does not see themselves essentially as an athlete, but as themselves. What is your thought about the loss of income? Well, the loss of income, let's put it this way. If there were a man who did not have use of one of his arms, and you told him it cost a lot of money and he could buy back that use, he'd give him every dime he had, I believe. Sandy Koufax has led a relatively private life in the decades after his retirement with only occasional public appearances. But in case anyone's wondering, he didn't lose his touch, even in retirement. Here's the Washington Post's Thomas Boswell and the Dodgers' Steve Garvey remembering a very special batting practice. Before the World Series in the late 70s, after he'd been retired for more than 10 years, I believe he was 42, pitched batting practice to the heart of the Dodger lineup, uh, to Ron Say and Steve Garvey and Dusty Baker. And he was just throwing fastballs to them, and they couldn't even get the ball out of the cage. And the first two guys, he broke like four bats. 
And I didn't see any aluminum around, so I said, you know what, I'll hit in the cages later. I'll just watch you. A coach, another Dodger coach, ran out to talk to Koufax, who was a, a pitching coach then. And, and he whispered in Koufax's ear, and Koufax suddenly ran off the mound, and the other pitcher came out to finish the batting practice. And the obvious reason was an hour before a World Series game, Sandy Koufax, retired for 12 years, is putting the heart of the Dodger batting order into a slump. And one of my dear friends, Dennis Prager, used to tell us, and Hengler reminded me of this, that he always had Christian envy when he was a kid growing up in the streets of Brooklyn because all these Christian kids that all these athletes look up, to, look up to. And when Sandy Koufax made his mark, this gave him tremendous joy and tremendous pride as a young Jewish boy. And what a man, what great character, what an athletic talent. And we celebrate the life of Sandy Koufax today on this day in history, decided to retire. As always, our This Days in History is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College.